Looks like cleanup on aisle four. Wait a minute, 99. That gives me an idea. I bet he's my Wheaties. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. Alrighty then. Hello and welcome back. This is Storytime and I am GamerDude. Glad to have you with us for some more stories this week. Today we're talking about grocery shopping. Something we all love to do, right? Oh, Mrs. GamerDude hates grocery shopping. She hates it with a passion. I don't mind it as much as she does. I think it's partly because I went with my mother when I was a little kid, and it kind of became something that I got used to having to do. And I've made a little bit of a game of it over the years. I go into the store knowing what my budget is, and then I calculate along as I go and figure out, am I going to make it? It's kind of like an ongoing Price is Right as I go. Oh no, sorry, you can't afford that raisin brand this week. You'll have to put that off till the next shopping trip. No, it's not that bad anymore, but it used to be. I still watch and worry about what I spend, but I don't have to monitor every nickel and dime like I used to, and like my mother did. I've mentioned this before, when we went shopping when I was a kid, my mom had one of those little clickers. I don't know if you've seen the thing, I don't know if you remember me talking about it, but it was a clicker with pennies, dimes, and dollars on it. And every item she bought, she clicked in the price, so that she could keep track, keep a running total, of what she was spending that trip. And she had to do that because of our budget. She had X number of dollars to spend each week, and she couldn't go over that. That's all the money there was, so she didn't want to go over that when she got to the checkout line. So it was always an ongoing thing. We had to keep track of what we were spending. And as I got older and I moved out on my own, I didn't use my mom's clicker, but I was able to keep a running total in my head. Yes, I added stuff up as I went along. It wasn't to the penny, but I kept it close enough that I was within a dollar or so when I got to the checkout line. Why? Because I had the same issue. I had a budget. This is what I could spend. I didn't want to be surprised at the checkout line and say, oh yeah, well, won't be eating chicken this week. Leave the ice cream though. No, no, no. I always ate well, just not expensively. But I did want to talk about grocery shopping because it has changed a lot over the years. But one of the things that inspired today's episode was the price of eggs. So we're going to talk about eggs a little today too. Now, as I've mentioned in past episodes, I always try to make these episodes evergreen, meaning no matter when you listen to it, it'll be relevant, or at least interesting. May not be relevant. I'm assuming a lot there, right? But I figure if you're listening, it's got to be relevant to you on some level. But the price of eggs is just crazy right now in early 2023, and this will not be an evergreen topic because I'm sure the price of eggs is going to come down at some point. But it's just an example of what we're going through during these days of the quasi-post-pandemic. We're really not post-pandemic. We're still in the middle of a pandemic, but people like to pretend we're not. On the one hand, they like to pretend we're not. On the other hand, the businesses are still taking advantage of the fact that, oh, well, supply is low. Supply chain problems. Prices are high. Demand is high. Blah, blah, blah. And I mean, to a certain extent, some of that is real, but not in the case of eggs. In early 2023... The price of eggs has basically tripled over the course of the past year. Now, I've pulled this information from a variety of news sources. I've documented everything I'm about to tell you. You can check me on this, though. I welcome your ability to do so. I welcome your willingness to do so, because actually, I think you should. Because the more we know about what's going on around us, the better equipped we are to fight it. And here's what we have to fight. There is an egg monopoly out there. I know it sounds stupid, but there is. The magic phrase they've used to avoid calling it an egg monopoly is vertical integration. They say the egg industry has been vertically integrated over the past few years. 
What does that mean? That means a couple of big egg companies are buying up all the little farms across the country so that one company owns the farms and then can set the price. They're calling that vertical integration. I don't know. I call it a monopoly. It might be multiple little monopolies because there are several very large egg producers that have done this. One of the biggest is Cal, Maine Foods. Think about it. Cal, California, Maine, the state of Maine, opposite ends of the country. They've bought up everything in between California and Maine. Okay, not everything, but a lot of everything. But they're the biggest egg producer in the United States. They dominate the egg industry. It sounds funny to say, oh, the egg industry? Yeah, it's an industry. There's a lot of money in it. People love their eggs. We eat a lot of eggs in this country. So just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about here, the price of eggs, the average price of eggs, and this is the national average. Prices by you may vary a little bit. But the average price for a dozen eggs in December 2021 was $1.79. Now, by me, it was a little cheaper than that. But it was $1.79 in December 2021. In December 2022, one year later, the average price of eggs was $4.25. That's insane. That's insane. Now, to explain this increase, the industry leaders, including those at CalMain Foods, have cited the general bugaboo of inflation, plus they blame an avian flu outbreak that occurred last year. It began in February 2022 and killed about 43 million egg-laying hens. And that sounds like a lot. 43 million hens? Oh, wow. That's a huge amount. Well, it's not really. It was 6%. 6% of the total egg-laying hens. There was a similar outbreak in 2015 of avian flu. That killed 12% of the egg-laying hens. There was no tripling of egg prices back then. There was an increase from $1.29 to $2.61 until the hens recovered. But that's not nearly the same kind of increase that has happened in the past year. Now, according to a farmer advocacy group that sent a letter to the Federal Trade Commission last week, last week being the third week of January 2023, they're blaming a collusive scheme among the industry leaders to turn the inflationary conditions which are prevalent in the country and the avian flu into an opportunity to gouge us, the consumers, on the price of eggs. Just so you know, the Farmer Advocacy Group is called Farm Action, and the letter they sent to the FTC is public record if you want to go check it out. Now, one of the senior advocates at this Farm Action Group, a woman named Sarah Cardin, explained what was going on like this. She said, if our market was truly competitive and working the way it's supposed to work, then if one dominant firm tries to raise their price, another firm should try to take their market share. But instead, what we see all of them doing is raising their prices. And think about that. She's exactly right. If company A decides to try to take advantage of people and raise their prices by a dollar, company B doesn't even have to lower their prices. They can just maintain their prices. They can maintain their prices and undersell company A. And let's say the eggs cost more for them to acquire. Let's say it costs them a dollar to acquire, and they raise their prices by a dollar. But if another company raises by $2, in order to be competitive, you wouldn't raise your price $2 as well. You would raise it a buck and a half. You'd steal their share. But that's not what they're doing. They're all raising their prices together. And because of the vertical integration that I was talking about at the beginning, because there's only a handful of egg producers, it's much more easy for them to collude in order to gouge us consumers. Because that's what it is. They're gouging us. They're stealing from us. They're taking our money for eggs. Now, who do you suppose is telling us the story about the avian flu and the inflation and the supply chain issues? Who do you suppose is feeding us those stories? Oh, yeah, it's Cal Maine. 
and the other egg suppliers. They're blaming the avian flu. They're blaming supply chain issues. They're blaming inflation. So Farm Action has asked the FTC to investigate CalMaine and the four other large egg producers. That means there's five companies. The four other egg producers are Roseacre Farms, Versova Holdings, Hillendale Farms, and Daybrook Foods. Five egg producers now supply most of the eggs for the entire country. What sense does that make? This country is huge. No wonder they can control the prices. There's only five of them. They're not trying to compete with each other. They're trying to help each other drive the price up, keep the price up, and reap profits thanks to us. That's the kind of stuff that makes me crazy. I actually haven't bought eggs since December. We got them just before the price spike that put them up around seven or eight bucks a dozen. I think the last dozen eggs that I bought was about four seventy-five for the dozen, and we needed it for baking, but we didn't need all of them, so we still have a dozen eggs sitting in the fridge. Yes, I know they get old, but guess what? We're going to eat old eggs, because I don't care. I'm not spending five bucks a dozen for eggs. I'm just not. You know what? I can live without eggs. But I can't live without food, and that's what prompted me also to talk about shopping again. You got to go to the grocery store. You got to go buy food. So I decided to reflect on how shopping has changed over the years. Now, the first supermarket didn't come into existence until 1916. No, I wasn't there. I'm an old dude, just not that old. A guy named Clarence Saunders opened the first Piggly Wiggly Market in Memphis, Tennessee in 1916. It was what they called a self-service market. Before that, you would normally bring a list to the guy who ran the general store in your town, or you'd phone it in, and they'd gather the stuff off the shelves for you, put it in bags, and you'd go home with it. Or some places would deliver it to you. But in 1916, Mr. Saunders came up with the idea, hey, let's let them go pick their stuff out, bring it to the counter, and check them out. And it caught on. So that shopping thing, walking through the supermarket, relatively new to the shopping experience. Even newer shopping carts. Shopping carts didn't exist at the beginning. They came up with that idea in the 1940s. Again, I wasn't there. I just know how to research. And as you might expect, the reception to shopping carts was a little tentative at the beginning. Because you know how well people like change. They were used to going through the store, putting things in a basket or a bag. They didn't want to be pushing a cart along. And men especially were hesitant to push a cart along that looked like a baby stroller. Because back in the 1940s, what self-respecting man would push around a baby stroller, let alone a shopping cart? It's interesting how the mentality has changed, and in some ways hasn't changed, isn't it? But yeah, shopping carts came around in the 1940s, and the supermarket as we know it today evolved from these early beginnings. And I remember going through the supermarket with my mom when I was a kid. I remember the boring aisles. The cleaning products were always boring. Oh, who wants to look at Ajax? Oh, crap, more Lysol. We always loved the cereal aisle. Not that we got the cereals that we wanted. Oh, Mom, could we get the Lucky Charms? Please. Because you always like to pick the little marshmallows out of it, right? We did get some sugar cereals, depending on what was on sale. But there was no regular purchases. We didn't always get Lucky Charms. We didn't always get Sugar Smacks. They were always Sugar Smacks back then, by the way. Nowadays, they're called Honey Smacks. Back then, we were much more honest. Sugar Smacks, Sugar Pops, Sugar Frosted Flakes. They were much more honest and obvious about what they were putting into that product. Sugar Frosted Flakes made it clear. You're getting flakes frosted with sugar. Now they're just frosted. Same with the Smacks. They're not Sugar Smacks. No, no, no. Trust us. We dipped them in honey. They're Honey Smacks. But as kids, all we wanted were those sweet cereals. And oftentimes what they did back then when they designed supermarkets is they would have an aisle with the cereal on one side and then they'd have the candy on the other side 
So when you brought your kids down that aisle, you were creating an aisle of horrors for the parents. Because they'd be fighting about the candy. They'd be fighting about the cereal. The kids would be screaming, I want the candy. I want the cereal. It was impossible to get through those aisles. I remember. The store manager figured, well, if they're not going to buy candy, at least I'll get them buying that sugary cereal. Somewhere along the line, they changed the design. At least in some supermarkets. They don't do that in my supermarket anymore. But I remember the candy and the cereal were in the same aisle, opposite sides. One of the main things that used to be a regular happening in the supermarket when I was a kid, and even as a young adult, that basically changed entirely in the mid-80s, I guess it was, mid to late 80s. Back in the day, the supermarket used to have to put a price on every item. You've heard of a pricing gun? Sometimes they'd have a gun-shaped device that had a tape that ran through it and would apply price tags to products. So you'd pull the trigger, and a price would be printed on the sticker, and the sticker would be applied to the product. So you'd get a can of tomato soup, and if it was 35 cents a can, the person pricing it would take the pricing gun and go click, 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 and put the tag on every can in that case. If they didn't have the pricing gun, they had the stamp type thing that was the same type of process, except instead of pointing a gun, it was like one of those rubber stamp devices where you'd push it down on top of the can, kind of like just a... And every time you clicked it down, a price tag would come out and stick to the top of the can. And so you'd move along the top of the cans and apply prices. It would just be basically that quick because all the cans are lined up and you had to put a price on everything. So you'd go and then put all the cans on the shelf. And then what you did at the end of your order, you'd take all of your cans, all of your boxes, all of your products, everything that you bought, which all had an individual sticker on it. You went to the checkout line. Now, this is before the days of the scanners. These days we have the scanners. The UPC code is on every product. You just scan it on the cash register. You get a price reading and the cash register adds everything up. Well, when I was a kid, there were no UPC codes. There were no scanners. That's why you had to put a price on every product. The cashier would have to handle every product that you bought. They'd have to find the price on the product and then enter the price in the cash register. And the cash register had a keyboard just like a basic calculator. 49 cents for a can of soup, you'd go, and they'd hit the subtotal button and add the next one. So there'd be a lot of typing, a lot of clicking, a lot of banging of keys, but that's what checking out was like. The cashier would have to look at every product, type in the price, and then slide it down the conveyor so you could bag it. And by the way, one of the things we don't have as much anymore is the price check. I mean, you still need to do it with certain sale items, but because everything is in the computer, you don't have to call Stan from customer service to run down to aisle 7 and check the price of a box of tea. But back in the day, if they forgot to put a price on something or if they missed it while applying price tags, you'd get the price check. Now, some say it takes longer to check out that way. I'm not so sure that it does because I remember being a cashier and I was a cashier before UPCs were a thing. Back when I worked at the drugstore, yeah, it wasn't a supermarket, but you still had to punch in the price and people would bring a shopping cart full of stuff up to the register. And on a busy day, you'd be... as fast as your little fingers could go. These days, if the scanner won't scan the UPC code, you might spend three minutes trying to get that damn UPC code to scan. How many times have we struggled with that? Whether it's you, me, the cashier, there are a lot of those UPC codes that just don't scan. I'm not sure the UPC scanner method is a better way to go. Some say it works better. Some say it works faster. I'm still not convinced. The other thing that was interesting from back in the day, once you got your full order all done, the cashier would give you the total. All right, that's going to be $58.92. $58.92. My mom would hand over three $20 bills. All right, so there's 60 bucks. 
Nowadays, all the cashier has to do is type in 60 and the cash register will automatically generate the change that's due, $1.08. Back then, you had to learn to do math. Back then, you had to be able to calculate that number. You had to be able to quickly do 60 minus 58.92 and come up with $1.08. That's how you applied math in daily life. And back then, cash was king. My mom always paid for groceries in cash. For many years, I always paid for groceries in cash. There were no debit cards. Supermarkets didn't even take credit cards. You couldn't pay for groceries with a credit card. You could pay with a check, but you had to have the supermarket's check cashing card. Oh, yeah, you couldn't just walk in there with a checkbook. No, no, you had to be approved to write checks. There was a process. I remember because I had to do this. You had to fill out a check cashing card. You had to provide your address. You had to provide your bank account number. And you had to provide a blank voided check so that they knew you weren't making it up. You weren't trying to pass a bad check to them. And it would take several days for them to approve your check cashing card. Once they did, you were good. And once they did, you could even write a check for over the amount of the sale so you could get cash back from the supermarket. As I said, this is before debit cards. But if you didn't want to go to the bank, if your total was $58.92, you could write a check for $78.92 and they'd give you 20 bucks back. But only if you had the pre-approved check cashing card. So cash was king. Checks were kind of like the prince. You could use them, but they weren't favored because it always took extra time to write a check. And people in the checkout line at supermarkets, they're not patient. And I remember getting stuck behind somebody writing a check. Even if they had the check writing card, you still had to write the check and you still had to show your ID. And then the cashier would have to write that information down on a sheet of paper. They had a form. I don't know what it was. I remember doing it, though, as a cashier. Every check that you got, you had to write the check down. You wanted to make sure, even with a check cashing card, they weren't trying to screw you. My mom never wrote a check. My mom always had cash. But that's why she kept track with a little clicker, because she only had a set amount of cash. If she went over that amount, then you had the embarrassing moment of, well, what can I leave behind? And nobody wants to be that person. Nobody wants to have to decide between the peanut butter and the dozen eggs. These are tough decisions nobody wants to face. You want to have made that decision before you get to the checkout line. And while you're going through the checkout line, don't forget there were no plastic bags back then. There are no plastic bags now, but that's for a different reason. When I was a kid, they hadn't even been invented yet. I mean, they'd been invented. They just weren't as widespread as they are or as they were back in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. But it was only paper bags when I was a little kid. And it was those paper bags that always had the dual purpose. You would use the paper bag for sure to bring your groceries home. But even then, you would use them as garbage can liners. And in the fall, you'd use them as the cover for all of your textbooks. You'd cut them up and make your book covers. Oh, some kids bought the fancy ones, but not many. Virtually every kid that I went to school with used shopping bags as book covers. It's what we called recycling. A couple of other things that used to exist at the supermarkets that don't really exist anymore. One thing is deposit bottles. I haven't seen deposit bottles in a long time. But back in the 70s and the 80s, and especially in the Midwest, not so much in New Jersey when I was growing up, but when I went to college out in Ohio, they were still using deposit bottles. What those are is if you bought an 8-pack of soda, an 8-pack of Pepsi, 8-pack of Coke, whatever soda. It would come in glass bottles. Yes, real glass bottles. And I'm sure you've seen them in old movies and old TV shows. You don't see them anymore because they don't make them. But you would get an 8-pack of glass bottles. And you'd pay 99 cents for an 8-pack. But you'd also pay an extra 80 cents on top of that, 10 cents a bottle deposit for the bottle. But as long as you brought your bottles back to the supermarket after you were done, you got the 80 cents back. And so if you bought an 8-pack of soda, you drank it all up. The next week you come into the store, you bring your 8-pack back, you buy a new 8-pack, and it's even at that point. 
And what they would do is they would take the bottles that you just used, that you just emptied, take them back to the bottling company, they'd clean them up and reuse them. That's the original recycling right there. They'd reuse the soda bottles. Yes, they did clean them. They sterilized them. I'm guessing they did. No, no, I'm sure they did. But that's one of those things we accepted on trust. We'd take our eight-pack of bottles back, the soda company would clean them all up and reuse them. But you left a deposit on them in case you didn't bring the bottles back. Cost you 10 cents a bottle. But that was another way to go make money, too. If you were living in a dorm or if you were walking through a park and people forgot their bottles, you could go gather up the bottles and get 10 cents a bottle. Take them back to the bottling company or the supermarket. No matter where you took them, they'd give you 10 cents a bottle. You don't see that anymore. The other thing you see less and less of is the free samples in supermarkets. That used to be a huge thing. I've mentioned this before. When I was in college, that was lunch on Fridays. My friends and I would go on our Friday shopping trips. We'd go to the local Kroger. Back at the deli counter, they had a sample booth where they were sampling whatever cold cuts were on sale. Back at the cheese counter, they'd have a sample booth. They were sampling whatever cheese was on sale. They'd often have somebody by the seafood counter. Whatever they were frying or baking that day, you could get free samples of seafood. Or maybe if you were lucky, a shrimp from a shrimp cocktail. You can still find some sample booths at some stores occasionally. But let me tell you, every Friday at Kroger, you could fill up. There were so many samples available. Crackers and cheese and cold cuts. Oh, it was amazing. It's a shame they stopped doing that. But I understand why. It's people like me who took advantage. We ruined the free samples. I'm sorry. Had I only known. One of the other things from shopping when I was a kid, and I've mentioned these before too, the green stamps. My mother used to collect green stamps. We had a drawer full of them. We would collect the green stamps. We'd put them in the books. We'd get the little catalogs. For the life of me, I don't remember what we bought with the green stamps, but I do remember my mom saving them, and I do remember getting tons of them at the supermarket. But that's one of those rewards programs that just faded with time, I guess. People's sensibilities changed over the years, and green stamps just kind of disappeared. You can actually still see the signs in old movies for S&H green stamps. Yes, I do this. I watch old movies and I look at the signs in the background. But if you look at some of those old supermarket signs, you can see the S&H green stamp signs hanging in the window or on the sign out front. And that's how they got people to keep going back to the store. Because there was competition back then and one of the things that they got you to do was to commit to going to that store because you got S&H green stamps there. That was the whole point. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's episode. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for listening. As always, I appreciate your support, and I appreciate all the time you spend here. Until next time, you guys take care of yourselves, and I'll see you when I see you.